Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Joel Christensen joins the show again. On May 30th, 2021, Dr. Christensen joined the show and we had a conversation about the Greek mythological hero, Achilles. In today's episode, Dr. Christensen joins the show again, and we're going to speak about one of the opponents of Achilles in Greek tradition, Paris. Dr. Christensen is Professor of Classical Studies at Brandeis University, based in the US. His research areas are in Homeric poetry, literary theory, narrative traditions, and performance. He's co-author of the book, Homer's Thebes, Epic Rivalries and the Appropriation of Mythical Pasts, which was published by Harvard University Press. And he's author of the book, The Many-Minded Man, The Odyssey, Psychology and the Therapy of Epic, which was published by Cornell University Press. And Dr. Christensen joins the show today from the US. Welcome back on the show, Joel. Hey, thanks for having me, especially to talk about Paris, which is, I guess, everybody's favorite hero, right? It's great to connect with you again, uh, Joel. Always, always good chatting with you. And you know, you know how the how this goes um, in terms of my my typical first uh, question um, no. to create enough background and context for the conversation, and then we'll uh, we'll obviously work our way into the details. Um, who is Paris in Greek mythology? So in Greek uh, mythology, Paris is the son of Priam, who is the king of Troy, and Hecuba, uh, Hecuba um, his primary wife. Um, and he's most famous uh, for being the one who abducts or absconds with Helen, thus causing the whole Trojan War. Um, as part of his sort of core tasks, um, he's also the one who, with the help of others, allegedly shoots the bow that kills Achilles. Um, and he himself actually dies in an archery du a duel with a guy named Philoctetes later. Um, so that's his basic story. He's crucial to the Trojan War. Um, he shows up in Homer's Iliad. He's Hector's younger brother. Um, and he becomes sort of famous as a lover, not a fighter. Um, and, you know, this sort of a sad sack uh, who is uh, everyone's fighting for, but doesn't seem to really fight for himself. Uh, but he changes a bit in different myths. I'm sure we can get into those details, but I think those are the basic facts. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for creating that background and, and some of what you brought up. I had had notes uh, that uh, wanted to cover with you as well in this this episode, and and um, I think would be very interesting as well. And I know you know a lot on this on on the, the this topic and uh, related ones is talking a little bit too about where some of the sources are from uh, from for these traditions in in the conversation today. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, what's the earliest attestation for for Paris in in Greek tradition that's known today? Well. So this is one of the, those things that um, is a, a little sticky, depending on who you're talking to, right? So as I mentioned in the Achilles episode, um, we have base images of these uh, Homeric figures that predate our Iliad and Odyssey. Um, so one of the most famous images on Greek bases uh, from the 6th century and 7th century BC and earlier um, is of the famous ju uh, Judgment of Paris. 
and it's almost formulaic. You'll have three goddesses um, in a row. We know they're goddesses because they're much bigger, and then Paris standing there. Um, and so there are many different iterations of this image. Um, so after that, uh, Paris shows up in the Iliad and the Odyssey, which depending on um, who you are and what you believe could be 8th century BC all the way up to the 5th century. Um, and then we have him in fragments. But with Paris, things get a little stranger uh, because there are some people who want to see his name is coming from uh, historical events as well. Um, so Paris, as uh, some people might know, has a second name. His other name is Alexander in modern English, but Alexandros in ancient Greek. Um, and we have evidence um, from Asia Minor, from the Hittite period, um, of a vassal king, of a king of a place called Wilusa, which sounds like Ilion, where then we get the Iliad from, another name for Troy. Um, a guy named Alaksandu, uh, who was a king of Wilusa. Um, so there are some people who trend towards uh, really hard historical re um, readings um, who see this as a, a reflection of some historical material that bled into the mythical tradition. Um, now, the name Alexander is really common. Um, we have names of the uh, versions of the female name, Alexandra, in Linear B tablets. So Linear B are those tablets from Mycenaean Greece. Um, so from, you know, 14th, uh, 1400 BCE and later, um, and there are priestesses named that. So the name Alexander means defender of people. Um, so Alexo means defender. Andra is a form of the word for man. Um, so I think it was probably a com as common a name in the ancient world as it is today in its various forms, uh, but it has a real deep history because it's not just Paris, of course, it gets picked up by Alexander the Great, and through Alexander the Great becomes just dispersed throughout the world. So the name, and I'm going on a little bit far about names now, but I want to finish this thought. The name goes all the way to India where there are versions of Sikandar and Askandar, and then it actually shows up in early Arabic as Iskandar. Um, so it's one of the oldest names that we have coming out of the Mediterranean in the Middle East. Um, and so people often have a difficult time disentangling um, history from myth. In the Homeric epics, when, when they were written, was the, was the term, and, and um, probably like a cognate of this, was it Alexander that was used or Paris in the Homeric epics? So, uh, and that, so, and part of this has to do with his, uh, sort of, sort of his backstory. So Paris, um, has both names or two names. Um, and this is something that's played with, um, in, in the Iliad and, and, and in the Odyssey is that people will have sort of common family names and then public city names or nicknames and, um, their official name. So, uh, another figure who sort of parallels Paris in this, um, is Astyanax, Paris's nephew, Hector's son. So Astyanax means uh, uh, the, the lord of the city, right, or city defender as well. Um, but we find out from book six of the Iliad that Hector calls him Scamandrios instead, after the river that's nearby. Um, so one notion, uh, and this is something I think that's not uh, unfamiliar in the modern world, is that you have some sort of family familiar names and then 
official public names. Um, but there's a different story with Paris, which is that um, he has a different name because he has a complicated story that involved him being sort of exiled or abandoned from the city when he was an infant and coming back later. Uh, whenever you're ready for that story, we can talk about that. If you could see my my notes, Joel, that that is literally the next uh, item that I was gonna what I was gonna bring up, and I was gonna say I, I was gonna say it, but I'll say it anyways. You you provided a a perfect segue, Joel, for the next uh, next item. Um, do you want to cover then what's known in tradition about his early years? Sure. Um, so there are a couple of variations here. Um, and one of the things that I, I want to make clear is that this doesn't actually show up uh, in the Iliad. There's no sense in Homer of the story I'm about to tell, um, except that there's tension between Paris and his brother and his family. Um, so the basic story um, that seems to be most common is that uh, when Paris, when, when Hecuba was pregnant with Paris, um, a seer, of some sort or an oracle um, gave a prophecy that he was going to uh, destroy the city. Um, so in, in I think the most vivid account, which is um, a fragment from the uh, poet Pindars from Thebes, um, Hecuba dreamed that she gave birth to a fire-breathing hundred-hander, so a monster with a hundred hands. Um, and so what they, in, in a scolion, so in a scholar's note to the Iliad, um, Hecuba imagines that she's giving birth to a flaming torch that burns down Troy. And we get a reflection of this in um, Aeschylus's play Agamemnon, where she imagines giving birth to a lion cub who destroys the city. Um, and so we have lots of fragments about this. And the basic idea is that he is a danger to the city, so he has to be put out to be exposed. And I know you're interested in some of the um, sources for this, but it goes back a long way, at least to the 6th century BCE. And then we have it told by like, Apollodorus and the later Roman Haginus, um, and we have fragments from, from playwrights as well. Um, so the, the basic idea of the story um, is that he was handed over to servants to be killed um, somewhere around Mount Ida um, and that he was raised there um, as, as sort of a country bumpkin. And so his name Paris, it seems, is the name that he, is sort of his common country name, whereas his sort of official royal name is Alexandros. Um, and what happens later on is that we get a sort of a classic heroic narrative. I can't remember if I talked about this last time, um, but there's a pattern that's followed with heroes like Achilles, Odysseus, which is that they're separated from their home context and they have to achieve great needs to go back and be reintegrated into it, right? It's a basic withdrawal and return pattern that we see throughout myth. Um, so in this story, you can imagine Paris growing up on a farm, um, participating in like uh, farm activities. He and the story is that he raises a great bull, right? He's best friends with this bull. It's an amazing bull. And years later, they're running. They're having games and sacrifices in honor, it seems, of the lost child Alexandros. He doesn't know he's Alexandros. He's Paris. 
Um, and you know, the, the, the Trojan tax collector comes around and sees this bull and says, we need this bull as a prize at these games. Um, so Paris, who's in love with his bull, not in a creepy Zeus way, but in a normal, I raised this cow, I love him way, um, goes to the games um, and competes in them uh, in order to win his bull back. Um, and while this is going on, when he's basically on the um, victory altar, uh, Cassandra, his sister, whose prophecies are never uh, believed, um, says, oh, wait, that is actually my brother, Alexandros. Priam, you should recognize him. Priam acknowledges him, and they reintegrate him into the city. So that's his backstory. Um, and I have no idea whether this is a backstory that, it, that existed contemporaneously with the Trojan War story or before, or it's an explanation that developed later. I mean, it's a really common pattern of the rejected child who comes back. Um, but it may have also developed at some point uh, as sort of a justification for Paris just not caring about what happens to Troy. What's the main source for that? tradition that story that you just told Joel. the earliest is pindar i think the best one um is probably apollodorus now um but we think it was told in a lost epic called the cypria or the cypria which tells a story of the beginning of the trojan war um it's really hard to say whether or not that happened um, because we only have fragments and descriptions of it. Um, but it is pretty clear from other fragments of, um, of Sophocles and Euripides that they told his story as well. But the fullest versions we have of it are the later mythographers, Apollodorus, and Hegeinus. Okay. Uh, you mentioned in one of your first responses that the, the choice he made between the three goddesses. Do you want to cover that tradition and, um, and the, uh, the main sources for it? Sure. Um, so the, the, the choice or the judgment of Paris, as it's famously called, um, it, it, I'm probably going to make it more complicated than you want it to be, but I'll walk it down and make it a, a little simpler after that. Right? Um, so the judgment of Paris is one of the most famous motifs in the Trojan War tradition, and it's often given as a cause of the Trojan War. But before getting to that, I just want to give it a slightly greater context um, because it's part of a step of causes, or it's a step in several causes of the war. The first one, if we try to put together the whole story of the cosmos, um, is that Zeus was trying to avert a succession problem. He was trying to ensure he didn't have a son greater than him, um, so he sent the nymph Thetis, who was fated to have a child greater than the father, um, to marry a mortal, and that mortal is Peleus. At their wedding, they left out the goddess Eris, whose name means strife or conflict, and she came, tossed a golden apple into the midst that says, Tai Kalistai, to the fairest, um, and three goddesses claimed it. And those goddesses were uh, Aphrodite, Athena, and Hera. According to some sources, they originally turned to Zeus and was like, who should get it? And Zeus is like, I'm not having anything of that mess. Um, and they went off and asked Paris. Um, so 
that they go off to ask Paris, just this mortal dude has always confused me. I've never seen a good reason for this. Um, but you have at the central this idea. We need, we have a conflict. We're going to go get a judgment for it. Now, before I describe that, I just want to say that the, the basic thematic pattern, conflict or eris in Greek, followed by judgment, crisis in Greek, followed by conflict over a bad judgment, um, is a central is a central thematic pattern in early Greek myth, and the words used that I just mentioned, Eris and Chrysis, jump out all the time. They're sort of like titling features. Um, so here we just have we have almost uh, a, a metaphor for what happens in Greek myth in general. And you know when we tell, I'll first tell the story of the judgment, and then go into some of the metaphorical readings. Um, so the story of the judgment of Paris, besides being clear from early face uh, paintings and uh, relief sculptures, uh, is was probably told uh, fully in that lost epic, the Cypria. But we get it referred to in fragmentary work by Pindar and other poets. Um, so, so basically what happens um, is that uh, Zeus tells Hermes to take the three goddesses to Mount Ida to have Paris resolve the matter. And the reason that this is given in some of the ancient scholarly work is that there's a strong relationship between uh, the Olympian gods and the Trojans. And this goes back to um, things like Aphrodite sleeping with Anchises, the father of uh, Aeneas, and Zeus abducting Ganymede. Um, the one uh, to be his cupbearer, right? His younger lover um, from the Trojans as well. So there's this idea that there's this closeness between the Trojans and the gods, and this may be the reason that Paris um, was selected. So um, when my students ask me about the judgment of Paris, one of the ways I try to make sense of it is by explaining that you know he's a younger man, he's on a mountain herding animals, and suddenly, boom three goddesses show up, right? And they're all goddesses, and these are normal guys. So it's like, you know, three supermodels showing up in the middle of the woods and being like, oh, which one of us is hottest, right? They're all amazing and beyond what a mortal could ever have. Now, um, in a lot of stories, Paris is already married at this point. He has a wife named Oinone um, and, um, and a child with her. Uh, but that's usually left aside and sort of suppressed in the tradition. Um, but what we get, of course, then, is we have three goddesses who are beyond what any mortal could ever hope for or imagine, um, so they commence with the bribery. Um, now, in our earliest fragments, we only hear about Aphrodite's bribe, um, which is the most beautiful woman in the world. Um, but by later in the tradition, um, what came to happen is that um, the other goddesses bribed him as well. Um, and Hera offered sort of great kingdom and dominion because she's the royal goddess, and Athena offered wisdom and victory in war, right? These things sound good, but remember, Paris is already someone who's been rejected from these things, and if he is a king, which at this point he's a prince, he doesn't really need a kingdom or victory in war, um, but he does get offered Helen. Um, so he chooses that. Now, later traditions turn this into a metaphor. 
Um, so philosophers later take this as a metaphor um, for the wrong choices we can make in life. So Helen or Aphrodite's choice becomes a symbol for um, the vices of the body uh, and for pleasure when you should really choose wisdom with Athena and not the worldly riches of someone like Hera. Um, so, you know, the judgment of Paris goes from being a cause of the, Tro of the Trojan War to a metaphor um, for the best way to live life. Okay. In the later tradition, when you say later, what, what uh, either, either Nolan or Cir Circa was, was that tradition created? Well, so that, I mean, that is getting to around the 5th century BCE, so it's not much later. Right. Um, and I think that sometimes when we talk about later in that way, we're imagining that the first thing that happens is the simple story. And then later people come with more complicated allegorical interpretations. Um, but I think that's a naive view of human progress. Um, I think the chances are that the complex story, the allegorical story, the metaphor um, was an early version too. We just don't have um, evidence of it, and we tend to select towards our own prejudice, which is that the simple story came first and the complicated version came later. And does his decision, does that lay the antecedents for him being introduced to Helen? Can you, can you share uh, in tradition what's, yeah. what's known about that in, uh, interaction? So, so the thing is that I think um, probably uh, Aphrodite should have offered a writer for the contract she gave him uh, because she gives him this choice, but it's not like she just you know snaps her fingers and, sh and Helen shows up, right? Instead, they have to go off together um, and, and get to Helen. So, you know, um, Paris is in Asia Minor, right, in modern Turkey. Helen's in Sparta, in the middle of the Peloponnese in modern Greece. Um, so they've got to go all the way there. Um, now, part of the story that's reflected here is probably a real historical um, fact, um, which is that there was shared culture between um, the uh, uh, cities on the coast of the Aegean in, the, in what we now call Turkey and Greece. Um, so Paris and his family had some relationship with the Atriids or the family of Menelaus because way back in the tradition, their family also came from Asia Minor. And so Paris, sometimes with Aeneas, his cousin, um, goes to Sparta uh, with the task of bringing Helen back with him. Um, and there are many versions of how he works this. In some, it's straight up violence and the kidnap. In others, Aphrodite makes her feel, uh, makes her fall in love with him and go. Um, in yet another one, one of my favorite weird ones, um, and this is from a, uh, a fragmentary historian named Nicias, um, and it shows up in the uh, in the scolia, the, the marginal notes to the to the Iliad, um, is that Menelaus was gone, um, and so Aphrodite had him had Paris put on a Menelaus costume, but she disguised him as Menelaus, and, Paris, and then she went away with him because of that. Um, so part of what you have is, is there's a deep and lively tradition uh, of trying to explain why Helen left Menelaus. Um, in some of the traditions, she's tricked, and some she chooses, and others she just forced, um, and in some she doesn't actually go at all. So there's, of course, the tradition where she ends up uh, spending um, 
the Trojan War in uh, Egypt, well, a fake version of her created by Hermes spends the entire time um, in Troy with Paris. Um, so the important thing is that, you know, Paris goes there um, and there's basic notions that he has a good relationship with Menelaus ahead of time. Um, there's one, another scolion to the Odyssey, um, has Alexander and Paris, uh, sorry, Paris and uh, Menelaus going to visit an oracle together um, and then Paris going home early. Just sort of the things you would do, like you go see your buddy, you haven't seen him for a while, and it's like, I got to go run some errands, come with me, and you go, right? Um, so it, there's, some, you know, there's some charm in some of these details as, as we see how people sort of fill in the bits around it. If uh, anyone listening is interested in reading and learning more about some of the, the different traditions that you were describing there, would it, would it be possible, Joel, to, to uh, send me sometime soon uh, a few, few sources that you think would be useful for listeners and then I can put them up in the show notes? Absolutely. Okay. But, um, and I, you know, there, there's, this, uh, there's a book by a man named Timothy Gantz called Early Greek Myth. Um, it, it's fabulous. It's from John Hopkins, 1993. It, it doesn't give you, um, like, it doesn't tell you a full story, but it does give you the details and the sources. So that's one I'll send you, but I just want to mention that here because I think often outside of classics, people don't know how excellent that book is. Okay. Yeah. So I will, I'll, I'll, I'll drop some links in the show notes on, on this point then for everyone listening. Um, so the next, uh, uh, which is probably chronological then, would be the Trojan War. Do you want to share what Paris's role uh, is in the Trojan, yeah, so Trojan? Oh, and one more thing. Oh, one more thing, Joel, before you run with it. Can you also bring in, in, in your response? And I was going to ask this, and it came up um, in the periphery in one of your responses earlier too. Can you describe what, what Paris's, and I'm looking for uh, a word that works for this. I'm going to say the word like composition, but in terms of how how uh, his colleagues would uh, um, would see him as during the Trojan War, but then also what his um, what his opponents would have seen him as in the Trojan War. I'm, I'm interested to hear if there's a juxtaposition that you believe. Yeah. So, I mean, if you were to roll up a character sheet in old uh, Dungeons and Dragons style for him, Paris would have high charisma, um, but probably lower intelligence, um, and maybe not be the best like hand-to-hand -hand fighter, right? Um, so he's a. I think the best description we have of him um, comes from his brother, right, H Hector, who criticizes him for being a coward and for really loving things like playing the liar. Um, and perfume. So he seems to be depicted um, as someone who's really into luxury um, and not really into being manly. Uh, but part of this has to do with sort of weird, weird to us, Greek traditions about manliness. Um, so, you know, in the modern world, if you're super manly, you sleep with a lot of women. Um, but in, you know, in ancient Greece, being super manly meant, meant that you, you, or separate from women. Like, it's okay to sleep with them, um, but if you're too interested in them, um, then you were decadent and you were effeminate. Um, so Paris is depicted as just being kind of weak. Um, and a good example of this is in book 11, he shoots Diomedes in the foot, and Diomedes says, look, this is the kind of wound that would come um, from a woman or a child, um, even though it actually does sideline him from the battle. So it's 
not a minor thing. Um, so Paris is depicted as an archer, which is often seen in the Iliad as being less um, warrior-like, even though that famous hero from the other epic, the Odyssey, is also an archer. Um, so he's pretty, he's got long hair, maybe it's perfumed, he's also good at playing the lyre. Um, but let's not forget, uh, Achilles is also described as the most beautiful man at Troy and someone um, who plays the lyre. So if you want to go back to Paris's role in the Trojan War, um, he basically, you know, he brings Helen home um, and the war is going to start. In other traditions, so from the Cypria again, uh, the Greeks send an embassy. It may have been Odysseus and Nestor. It may have been Menelaus and Nestor and Odysseus. But they send an embassy before the war, which is basically like, look, can you send Helen back? Let's not have a war about this. Um, and this is reflected, I think, in Book 7 of the Iliad, where the um, Trojans have an assembly, and they discuss, hey, what should we do? Antenor, Trojan, says, let's give Helen back. And Paris says, nope, I'm not going to give her back. But I'll give all the stuff that I stole with her. So apparently when he ran away with Helen, according to Homer, um, he also stole a bunch of Menelaus's gold and jewels and stuff. Um, so he offers to give that back, but not her. Um, and nobody tells him to give her back, uh, which is something that's always been a bit strange to me. Um, so Paris is probably most memorable appearance in the Iliad. Um, and then I'll move on to outside the Iliad, is he fights a duel with Menelaus in book three, almost loses, is about to die when Aphrodite plucks him away, drops him down in his bedroom, and then goes and tells Helen that she needs to come and have sex with him. Um, and Helen's like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't like him, and people will hate me because all of this is my fault and his. And Aphrodite says, well, you, you better not betray me. Go and deal with it. And so Helen goes in and like tears into him, criticizes him for not being as manly or as warrior-like as the others. Um, and then um, he says, look, uh, none of this is my choice. And then they go to bed together. Um, so Paris becomes a really interesting figure that way. What's important, though, is that outside of the Iliad, where he's depicted as a bit of um, a weakling and a cad, um, he is the one who kills Achilles. It's with help, right? Um, but he, does, he is the one who shoots the, the arrow that, that takes him out. Now, he's eventually killed by Philoctetes, um, but he is an important figure from the beginning to the end of the Trojan War. Okay, so let's go over those last couple points that you made then Joel where does um uh Paris killing Achilles sh show up in uh in, in in the sources so we um I mean it shows up in the mythographers I've mentioned already but the evidence we have um has it coming in a poem that follows the Iliad that we've lost called the Ethiopus um, and that story, Memnon comes from Ethiopia, Penthesilea comes from the Amazons to defend the Trojans. Eventually they're killed, um, but right at the gate, the skiing gate, um, according to uh, the fragments we have, um, Achilles dies at the hands of Patroclus. Um, and it seems pretty clear that this was already known, or this was known well to the Iliad and its audiences, uh, because Hector prophesies something like this before his death um, in Book 22 of the Iliad. 
Um, so Paris is part of the battle um, well after the end of the Iliad when Hector dies, um, and he's there when Achilles is trying to rush the gates of Troy, and it's his arrow, with the help of Apollo, um, that ends Achilles' life. Okay, and that tradition you just said, was that uh, that source to at least the classical era in Greece? Yeah, before. It's definitely from the archaic period, if not earlier. Um, I mean, Achilles' death in Paris's hands is one of those sort of core parts of the Trojan War tradition. Um, so I would say that it's, it's at least contemporaneous with, if not earlier, than the Iliad and the Odyssey we have. And I think you made this comment in the last um, episode, but I want to I want to uh, bringing bring it up in this uh, episode because um, it's related to what we're talking about right now. So the the idiom Achilles's heel. So that that was invented at a later date. That that isn't as old as some of the stuff we're talking about today. But I think his death by foot wound is a really ancient tradition, right? It's probably older than the Iliad, obviously. Um, but the explanation for it, that it's because he was dipped in the river Styx or something like that, um, is much later. Um, so there's this whole uh, metaphorical and symbolic um, uh, relationship between heroes and their feet. Um, and their feet become a symbol for connection to life and vitality. Um, and I think at an early point, it was just sort of symbolic that he died from a foot wound, um, but that sort of the meaning or valence of that symbol symbolism faded, um, and so we developed different explanations. Okay, and you mentioned his death. Uh, can you give it the same same uh, treatment in, in detail? What's known about, or what's the, the prominent uh, tradition or traditions about how he dies? Yeah, so Paris uh, makes it to the almost to the end of the Trojan War, which makes sense because he's the whole reason for it. Um, but what we have is him dying in you know our earliest records and the fragments of a poem called the Little Iliad or the Ilias Parla, um, which is the poem before the Iliopersis or the sack of Troy. Um, and in this story, um, the Neoptolemus Achilles son and Odysseus have gone back and retrieved Philoctetes, who's a great archer and carries Heracles' bow. Um, and Philoctetes has been sidelined with a foot wound himself um, on an island for almost 10 years. So that story is told in the play Philoctetes by Sophocles. Anyway, they get back and suddenly you have master archer against master archer. You could imagine like a spy versus spy type of mockery of it if you wanted to. Um, but you know, they are two, you can even think of them as two um, snipers, sharpshooters going after each other. Um, so we don't have great details about this. Um, but the basic tradition is that in an archery duel, um, Paris is defeated by Philoctetes. Um, and then basically the war's over, except the Greeks have to figure out how to get through the, the divinely built walls of Troy. Uh, so when Paris is dead, it's almost as if the war should end anyway, because Helen is now no longer with him. Um, but in some traditions, she then goes on to marry his brother, uh, Deiphobus, um, and the war continues for uh, a sh shorter but prolonged amount of time. Okay. Um, so working our way to wrapping up the, the episode, Joel, is there anything that we haven't covered on Paris in this conversation that you feel is really important that you want to get across in this episode today? I mean, I guess what I would like to just emphasize is that myth is so deep and varied. And what we have in, you know, our famous 
versions from um, Homer um, are a bunch of local traditions being knitted together in a master narrative. Um, and I think Paris is a figure of his own, right? He's not just like a, the, the lame brother we get in the Iliad, right? Like he had a, a narrative tradition that has him withdrawing from the city, suffering at their hands, and he's suffering from fate on his own. In some ways, it was fated to destroy Troy, um, and he didn't really want to, right? It's more complicated than that. Um, and so I, I, I would just say that Paris is a fully fleshed figure in the mythographical tradition um, if we take the time uh, to learn his details. You think he should have chose a different traditional goddess or something else? I mean, look, um, I, I kind of figure like he was screwed one way or another, right? Like if your fate is to bring him to your city, um, what should you do? Prolong it by choosing Athena or have a good time along the way, right? Um, and that is essential, an essential question for all of us, right? That's why the judgment of Paris is such an important question um, because it forces us to think about the following, which is if you know that you're fated to have bad things happen to you, how do you act and how do you live in the meantime, right? Um, and you might say, well, I don't know I'm fated to have bad things happen to you, but we're all fated to age and die, right? There's no question about that. So the judgment of Paris, then, if we're going to make it a metaphor, um, because something becomes something we all have to think about. Like, do you choose to live in sort of you know, pursuit of pleasure? Do you pursue wisdom? Do you pursue dominion and riches? And then the last question is, do you have to choose to just do one? Right. Um, so I think if we take away the story and we think about what it's really asking us about life, um, I think that we'll find at different points in life we have different answers. Yeah, it sounds like in tradition, um, uh, Paris was forced uh, uh, to to choose one, but 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 in 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 reality, people have many choices that they can make in life. Right. You bring a lot of depth uh, to these conversations, Joel. I always enjoy chatting with you. Thanks for coming on the show again. No problem. I love talking to you too. Th thank you, Joel. So the couple books, everybody, that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Christensen wrote, he's co-author of Homer's Thebes, Epic Rivalries and the Appropriation of Mythical Pasts. And he's author of the book, The Many-Minded Man, The Odyssey, Psychology and the Therapy of Epic. I'll drop links to both the books and I'll also drop a link to the Achilles episode that we did in the past. And I'll drop uh, some links as well to some of the citations that we spoke about regarding the traditions around Paris and Helen meeting in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Joel and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.